Well, let me wish everyone here a good morning. I think, am I on? I'm getting there. There I am. Yeah, good morning, everyone. Whether you're here in person, whether you're joining us online, we are so glad that we can be together uh, to look at God's Word. And I confess, uh, this morning, I do that with a little bit of trepidation uh, as I ask you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I say I do that with trepidation because, well, first, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And it's also probably one of the passages I have used the most uh, throughout my ministry uh, because these words offer amazing and sort of unshakable hope, uh, especially to people who are grieving loss. Uh, these are words of comfort, even for people who are standing at the grave of someone they love. So I've read these words so often at funerals, and yet I confess that this morning I've never actually preached a sermon on them. Um, and I'm not actually, I'm not actively avoiding preaching on this passage, it's just sort of the way it worked out. But after this week and studying the passage, maybe I should have been more actively avoiding it because this passage talks about the return of Jesus. And that places this passage firmly in the domain of something we call eschatology. Uh, and eschatology is just one of those big theological words we, we like to use. Uh, it just means the study of the last things. Uh, it's the study of the sort of the final events of God's plan for salvation and restoration of his creation. And I made the mistake in, in knowing that of cracking open one of my textbooks from seminary, looking up eschatology. Oh, and I just, it's sort of, again, it's just one of those things. It just, you're overwhelmed by all the thoughts and opinions that people have on this topic. This book had sections on modernized eschatology and demodernized eschatology and realized eschatology and existentialized eschatology. I don't even know what that means. Politicalized eschatology, systematized eschatology. And then you get into the nitty-gritty of having like pre-millennial views and post-millennial views and amillennial views. And actually, it just gets complicated from there. Uh, and looking at it all, it just, it kind of, it's one of those things where it almost, after looking at it, it leaves you with more questions than answers. Um, but I guess that's something I can relate to with the Thessalonian church, because that's where the Thessalonian church actually found themselves as Paul began to write this letter. Uh, this passage was written because they, this church had questions about the return of Jesus, questions about what that was going to be like. So, in our passage, Paul is writing actually to clear up the questions that they, this church had, and hopefully uh, we're going to do much the same thing um, together here this morning uh, around the topic of the return of Jesus. So if you want to follow along with me, uh, let's read our passage sort of together. I'll read it for you. You can follow along. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18 is what we'll be looking at. And Paul says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that ye may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, 
with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would just be with us in a very special, very powerful way. That, Lord, you would lend us your presence. Lord, as we look at what can be a difficult topic, but, Lord, it's also a topic that just shines light upon the hope that we have. And, Lord, I pray that light would shine greatly in our lives today. Uh, For those who just need it to hear these words in a special way, that that hope would be something that is so firm and so powerful that they can draw strength from. And, Lord, for all of us, as we remember the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that, Lord, it would be something that is so encouraging. Uh, to each and every one of our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would make our hearts humble, ready to hear this truth, and Lord, uh, just excited by all that you have in store uh, for your people through Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's, it's daylight savings time, uh, and I don't know about you, but it's that one where you skip back that always gives me trouble because I always worry that maybe I've forgotten and like church is starting without me because it's always on a Sunday. So like I'm always like, I hope this, I hope I'm right about this. The other one doesn't give me a problem because I'm just here an hour early if it doesn't happen. But you know, there's that, I don't know, there's sort of that, it's the fear of missing out, I guess, uh, that kind of captures me. And John MacArthur, uh, he tells a story I heard about several years ago um, about missing out. He, he talks about um, when he was in Bible college. And he sets the scene by explaining that he went to Bible college, he went to school with this one guy who's terrified about the prospect of Jesus' return because he constantly worried he would be left out, that he would be left behind. And of course, as college boys are, you know, the other guys in the the dormitory heard about that and they decided, well, being the good friends we are, we should decide, we're going to pull off a fake rapture. Uh, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna. So uh, they went to the sound stage and they got a big sheet of aluminum that made thunder sounds. And uh, they got they, somebody had a trumpet, so they got a trumpet. And then they found an old press camera that had those big flash bulbs on it. So they got one of those. And sure enough, you know, they tiptoe into this guy's room in the middle of the night when he was asleep in his bunk. And you know, one guy held the camera right over his feet face. One guy hit the aluminum sheet. Another blew the trumpet. One guy yelled, come, at the, at the you know, top of his lungs, and they flashed the flash as soon as his eyes went open. And then they ran. They ran, and they all, said, they all hid uh, from him in the dining hall. Well, this poor guy, stunned, I'm sure, he comes wandering out of his room, went room, you know, he went room to room. Everybody's gone. Everybody's missing. And sure enough, ends up screaming down the hall, I've been left behind. I've been left behind. Oh, and two things strike me about that story. The first is I would totally do that to someone if I had the chance. Wouldn't you? That'd be so much fun. It's terrible. But secondly, it raises a question. And the question is, as a believer, could you miss the coming of Jesus? Could you be left behind? Could you somehow just be overlooked? And in fact, that is the big question. 
that the people in the church of Thessalonica were asking themselves as Paul is writing this letter. But it's actually a question with a little bit of a twist because they weren't actually worried about they themselves missing out on the, on, on the, the return of Christ. They were actually worried about their friends and their loved ones and their fellow believers who had actually already passed away, who had died. They are worried about them missing out because, again, just for context here, I mean, when Paul came to Thessalonica, he came preaching the gospel, but he also came preaching the return of Jesus, that hope that we have. That those who believed would also be caught up in the clouds with Christ when he returned. But somehow, the people in this church were under the impression that Jesus' return was going to happen very soon. Uh, They were thinking in terms of weeks, maybe months, certainly not years or even centuries. So they were convinced Jesus was coming back in their lifetime that they would see this event with their own eyes. In fact, Mark actually briefly mentioned last week that some of them were so sure Jesus was coming back right away that they, they were quitting their jobs. It was like, why? I don't have to go to work. If Jesus is coming back, I'll just wait for him on my roof kind of thing. They were just sitting around and literally waiting for this moment to happen. They thought it was just right there. They never expected that Jesus would delay to the point where some of them would actually die. Some of them would see death before they saw Jesus in the clouds. And yet, of course, in time, some of them did. Some of them did die. So they had the question, and they needed some clarity on, and the biggest question they had was, what happens to those who've died when Jesus comes back? And Paul is writing this section of this letter to answer that very question. In doing so, Paul he gives us not only one, I think, one of the most beautiful and powerful passages in the Bible about our hope, but he also provides several answers to questions that we often have about the return of our Lord. And those are some of the questions we're actually going to be looking at this morning. And the very first question I think Paul answers for us is, what difference does it really make? I mean, if, if, if Jesus is coming back at some unknown time in the future, What difference does it really make to us here today as we live our lives moment by moment? And Paul answers that question by pointing us to hope. He says in verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. It is hope that Paul is pointing to that makes a difference, especially in those times when we grieve. And I think this is such an important verse for us to hear because God doesn't want us to be uninformed about that. He doesn't want us to be ignorant about the hope that we have as his people. And even though we hear this passage mostly read at funerals, and it is a great comfort to us in our grief, the hope that we read about here is hope that should affect every part of our life. As Christians, we should be living with our eyes on eternity. We should be focused on, not on what is temporary, but on what is eternal. Hope is something we should be focused on and living in and living out every day of our lives. The Bible even calls it in 1 Peter 1 verse 3, he calls it a living hope. Titus 2.13 calls it our blessed hope. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 refers to it as our joyful hope. Hebrews 6.19, it says it's an anchoring hope. 
1 John 3, 3 called it a purifying hope. And even in our passage this morning, Paul talks about it as being a comforting hope or an encouraging hope. This hope that we have is not just something we should you know, dust off at funerals. This would be a source of our strength for living every day as believers. That's why Paul doesn't want us to be uninformed about it, because he wants us to have this hope constantly before us. This is living hope, the living hope of every believer, and it's ours. And hope makes the difference. Which brings us to the second question Paul answers. It's probably the one I wanted to avoid is, and that's what exactly is Paul talking about here? Because this is where things could get complicated if you wanted them to. Because some might look at this and say, this is the passage about the rapture. Others say, this is the second coming. And then the arguments begin about pre-trib and post-trib and mid-trib and even pre-wrath. And it it reminds me of a joke (laughs) where someone was asked, are you pre-millennial, post-millennial, or a-millennial? And the guy answered, I'm pan-millennial. Because it all pans out in the end. And that's, that's exactly where I stand on this. But and I don't want to sort of split too many theological hairs or, you know, arguments when it comes to eschatology here, but if I were to answer the question, what is, Paul, what is this passage talking about? My simple answer would be, this is what comes next. It's that, it's that simple. Paul's words here are talking about the next step in God's plan of redemption. This is the next event on God's calendar when it comes to Christ. After Jesus' resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven and now we, we are waiting for his return. And his return is what Jesus is talking about, or Paul is talking about here. So when you're looking at the sky one day, and in that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and you see Jesus in the clouds, that's this. That, that, is, that will be the moment Paul is talking about in our passage here. And there may be signs that come before this. There may not. There may be events in the world you know, that take place before this coming. There may not. Uh, but this is... This is what we are waiting for as believers. And this is the next, the next part of God's plan of redemption for his people when it comes to Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the third question about this hope that Paul's talking about. And that's, what is the source of this hope that we have? Well, he says in verse 14, Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep hope. What's the source of our hope? You know, the world around us, when it talks about hope, you realize their hope is never a sure thing. Uh, I looked up some definitions of hope this week, and it kind of says hope is the desire or longing for, for a possible good in your life. But it's only a possible good. So when people in the world say, I'm, I'm hoping something will happen, It means it would be nice if it happened to them, but there's no sort of guarantees. And there's no guarantees for people because they're placing their hope in the wrong things. Because their hope is built on the wrong foundation. Because we often try to put our hope in things that let us down. You know, the economy. Well, it's great while it's good, but when it's bad, things can fall apart. You know, your bank account, your possessions, your, your talents, your education, all that stuff, it can all just crumble away if your hope's not founded in something deeper. You know, it's said the philosopher Voltaire thought he could find hope in human reasoning. And at the end, at the, you know, at the end of his search, he simply replied, I wish I'd never been born. 
dead end. Lord Byron, he attempted to live his life, you know, full of lust and pleasure, hoping that would, you know, provide meaning. His own testimony at the end was simply the worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. Jay Gould was an American millionaire, had more money than most of us could probably dream of. But when he lay dying, he said, I suppose I'm the most miserable man on earth. And a little over a month before he died, the famous atheist John Paul Sartre desperately resisted those feelings of hope by saying to himself, I know I will die in hope. But then in profound sadness, he would add, but hope needs a foundation. And he's not wrong. Hope does need a foundation. And that hope for the Christian is not based on ourselves. It's not based on our circumstances. It's not based on the political powers of our time or our bank accounts or possessions or anything like that. Because for the believer, the foundation of our hope is Christ. That's what Paul points his readers to in this passage. That Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That he rose again on the third day and that he promised to return and come back for his people. That's the basis of our hope. And it's found in Christ, not in anything else. And, and that's why Christian hope, it's not, like, it's not like a balloon that we release, you know, just hoping for the best as it floats upwards. A better picture of the Christian hope is an anchor for our souls. It's unshakable, even in the greatest of storms. It is a firm foundation for living and an even greater comfort in dying. It's hope in Christ. And I love the words of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, beginning of 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And those are words we can build our lives upon. Those are words that lay a true foundation for living as they speak of our unfailing hope. Because as the old Bible song goes, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Which brings us to the final question that Paul answers for us in our passage this morning. And that's, what's the nature of this hope? Um, in other words, what is it going to look like in this moment when our hope is made real before our eyes? And this is sort of the lion's share of, 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 this, of this passage that, you know, as Paul talks about what's going to go on on that glorious day. And really for us, the answer is going to break down into a few sort of different parts. And I'm going to begin with the return of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, verse 16. We read, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Jesus is coming back. And again, we as believers, we may differ on the details of some of those things, about the timing of Jesus' return, but no true believer can deny the truth that Jesus is coming back because the Bible is full of that promise. Uh, the book of Acts when Jesus ascends, Acts chapter 1, we read, And while they were gazing into the heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus' own words, John 14, verse 3, he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. And again, Jesus, Matthew 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus is coming back. And notice this is a physical, bodily return of Jesus Christ. Because, you know, there's always some who'll say, you know, well, Jesus, he's just going to come back spiritually. He's just going to come back metaphorically, whatever, you know, whatever. Like, it's just going to be kind of that. No, this is, this is Jesus himself who returns. You know, when he comes back, he will have a body. We will be able to see him. We will be able to touch him. We'll be able to hear him. The person of Jesus is coming back. And he's coming in glory. And he's coming in power. And he's coming back unveiled and unrivaled and righteous. And that leads us to the next lesson. It's not only Jesus who's coming back, but when he comes back, he's also going to bring with him all of those believers who died. Uh, Verse 14 says, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And probably every person here has probably asked the question, what happens after we die? Paul's actually giving us an answer here. When we die, our spirit is separated from our bodies. And the body is placed in a tomb or it's buried at sea or whatever we do with our bodies. But the spirit of the person, the soul, goes to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul says, We are a good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The old verse, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's the truth for believers. And again, in Philippians 1, talking about himself, beginning in verse 23, he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to be, depart and be with Jesus, or be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So those who Paul says have fallen asleep, which was just an ancient world way of saying they died, um, for those who are died in Christ, they're not really sleeping. Uh, and this is not talking about purgatory or you know, anything like that. It's not suspended animation. Those people who die in Christ are now present in spirit with Jesus. That's why Jesus has to bring them back, because they're with him right now. And that's why at funerals I can stand in the pulpit and tell people, beyond any doubt... The greatest comfort I can give you is that your loved one is even now with Jesus. And that brings us to the third lesson about the return of Jesus. And that is the resurrection. Again, back to our passage, verse 15. It says, For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. On this day when Jesus returned, all of those who have died and whose spirit is, is, is now with Jesus, they'll not just return with him, but they will be resurrected. They'll be reunited with, with a physical body. And this is not just sort of recitation of the old you know, of your old earthly body. It's not like God goes, finds your old spare parts and puts them back together. This is a recreation. This is a, this is a glorified body. This is your eternal body. This is the body where there'll be no more, you know, 
tears or sorrow or pain. This is the body where you'll be able to run and not grow weary and walk and not faint. A body where sin and death have no stain. He says about the same transformation. He talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. Beginning in 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we should all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. And it's not just the dead who, who receive this. Those who are alive, who are, you know, until the coming of the Lord, they too will also be changed. They'll be transformed in the air when they see Jesus. But there's this resurrection that happens. Which brings us to the last lesson we learned about the nature of Jesus' return. And that's, there's going to be a reunion. As we're told in verse 17, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. You know, sometimes, sometimes people will ask me as a pastor, what do you think heaven will be like? And I honestly, I never really know how to answer that question. Because while the Bible, it, the Bible gives us some clues, it gives us some hint about what heaven will be like, but the real lesson the Bible teaches us is it's beyond anything you can even imagine. So I don't even bother imagining it because it's going to be bigger than that, I guess. But even though I can't grasp all the details of heaven, there are two things that I do know about heaven that are for sure true. And the first is that we will be with the people that we love. Uh, We will all be caught up together in the air with the Lord. This will be the greatest family reunion to ever take place. This is the moment that many of us have been waiting for, to see those who have gone before. I found one pastor who said he'd ask his 10-year-old son, what do you want to, you know, why do you want to go to heaven? And he expected something like, you know, wanted to see streets of gold or the pearly gates or maybe just no homework or anything like that. Instead, his son say, because I want to see grandpa. And you know, what a moment when we see all of those who loved, all of those who passed on before us will be with us again. You know, sometimes I collect bulletins from, from funerals as a reminder of the person that we've lost. And, but I read someone this week who called that their heaven file. You know, saying that they think of each of those bulletins from a funeral as being a personal invitation that God has given to the great party in heaven when Jesus comes back. And that's what it'll be. We will be reunited with those that we love, those who died in Christ. But we will also be reunited with Jesus because we'll be with him. He will be with us and he will be our God forever. And that relationship that we can have with him now is, is untouched by the stain of sin in any way. And really, if you want a definition of what heaven is, that's as simple as I can get it. Heaven is being in the presence of Jesus. And that's the promise that God gives to his people. You know, right at almost the very end, Revelation 21, beginning of verse 1, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride ordained for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And that is what is in store for those who believe. There's the return of Jesus. There's the return of those who died in Christ. There's the resurrection and our transformation and then there's the reunion with God and the whole family of God, together forever. And that is good news. And that's our hope as believers. Dead or alive, it is yours in Christ. And that's why Paul tells us, I think in verse 18, encourage each other with these words. Because when you have that kind of hope, it changes everything. So I actually want to just close with one more question. And the question is, what is required? What must a person do to make this their own? And the answer is to simply believe. You know, we don't work for it. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to be worthy of it. All we're asked to do is believe. Acts 16, verses 30 and 31 says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus. And you'll be saved. Romans 10, 9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Acts 2, 21, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Believe in Jesus. Believe that he was the son of God who entered into the world at Christmas time as a baby. Believe that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. Believe that he rose again on the third day to give us the promise of eternal life. And believe that he's coming again to fulfill the hope that he has given to us. And you can do that today. You know, today you have the opportunity to be certain of where you'll spend eternity. And maybe someone here, God is calling them to do that today. And you can come to him. You can come to Jesus with your guilt, Come with your pain. Come with all of your problems and your burdens and lay them down before him and let him give you rest and peace. Today, Jesus wants to come into your life and offer you hope. And all you need to do is believe. If you want, you can pray a simple prayer. You can confess you're a sinner. You know, admit your life has been full of pain and failure and rebellion and ask Jesus to forgive your sins. Come into your life as your Lord and Savior, and he will. He'll do that, and he will forgive you, and he'll wash away this, all of your sins. He'll wash away the stains of a broken life and leave you as white as the purest snow in his sight. In fact, 1 John 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he'll do that because that's the reason he came in the first place. He came to save us. He came to make us his own. He came to offer us hope. Hope even in this fallen world. And that's what brings us again to the communion table this morning. And I think it's fitting after the passage we've just looked at as we remind ourselves of all that Jesus has done on our behalf to give us the hope that we have. 
And I just want to prepare our hearts together to come to this table as we pray. Let's pray. Father God, um, hope. It's such a simple word with such a profound and deep meaning in each of our lives. Lord, as we hope in you, we find strength, we find encouragement, we find comfort, even in the darkest and most difficult of times. And we can do that because we know that our hope is in you. And that, Lord, you are unfailing. And that, Lord, you came to this earth, you took on, the word became flesh, you lived a perfect life, you died on the cross paying for our sins, you rose again on the third day to show us the path to eternal life, and that, Lord, your promise is that you still will return, that you will come back, and one day you will make everything, everything in this broken world, you will make right. And Lord, we pray that we would live with our eyes fixed on that hope. As believers, we would live with our eyes fixed on eternity, knowing that even what we see around us right now is not the end, because there is more to come. I pray that, Lord, we would be watchful as we live that. Lord, we would be ready in that moment when we see you face to face on that glorious day when you return. And Lord, as we come to this table once again this morning, I pray again that you would just quiet our hearts and that, Lord, our focus would be upon you and upon the hope that we have in you because, all of, because of all that you have done um, for us. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.